0: Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter three, Philippians chapter three. And I'll be reading verses two through eleven. And if you can, please stand. let's Here's the word of the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because we are the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Oh, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of Christ. Oh, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus My Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that's based on faith. Oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Please be seated. Our Father, we come before You through Jesus and dwell with Your Holy Spirit. And as children, we ask You to give us Bread, give us food, your holy word, feed your people. All week long, we hear many, we listen to many voices. That's the voice that we long to hear, it's on the Lord's day. The voice of our Lord speaking to us. Comforting us, changing us, rebuking us, enlarging our hearts. So please do the work that no man can do. Pray for your Holy Spirit to be working in us. Work in me, through me. Help me to be faithful and help the congregation to be faithful, Lord. We want you to be glorified and exalted today. So please empower us enable us by your grace and your mercy and your might in Jesus name amen amen in Matthew 11:16 Jesus says to what shall we compare this generation and Jesus often compare the generation, his generation, to different things. So, Brian read here, Mark 9, this adulterous generation. In in Matthew 11, he goes on to say that this generation are just like little children in the market, wanting to be entertained. But I was thinking, if we apply that question to our generation, to to what shall we compare our generation? And I believe there are many words That can be used to describe our generation. But one word in particular that has been in my mind is the word superficiality. We live in a very superficial generation. Shallow. Depthless. No depth at all. And we can see that. Just one example is with social media and the word friend. Friend. So... Let's define the word. So the Merriam-Webster, the first definition is one attached to another by affection or esteem. The Cambridge Dictionary says, a person who you know well and you like a lot. The Greek word, philos. I call you my friend, Jesus says. Also, it's connected to something value, treasure. Something you have affections for. So people have hundreds and thousands of friends in their social media and they have no affection, no attachment, and no care at all. Am I wrong? How many friends do you have in your Facebook that you have no, no attachment whatsoever? Superficiality. But they're all your friends. So you have people with hundreds and thousands of friends, and yet they live in depression because they don't have real friends in their lives. And we could apply that to the word follower. How many followers do you have? And follow becomes this very superficial thing. Nothing to do with what Rick read here about following Jesus, the union with Christ. The availability of Google. Now everybody's an expert on everything because we have Google. So everybody knows everything because you have Wikipedia. Right? So people, they believe they have this profound knowledge. They never study anything but Google some things. So superficiality. And sadly, that creeps into the church. So many people live a very superficial Christian life. Church is very superficial. There is no connection with people's lives. No affection towards your church members. Christ warned us. He warns us about the danger of this superficiality of thinking that you know Christ that you know the truth when in reality you do not know so for example in Matthew chapter 7 the Lord says let me go back here I don't think I have the oh, I'll skip that I'll reach you Matthew chapter 7 or you can open your Bibles there that's a very powerful warning from Jesus own mouth Not everyone, in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Meaning, I know you. This double mention of the name Lord implying some, I know we are friends. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We don't know each other. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there will be, and there is right now, a great number of people in hell Who believed they knew Jesus? They thought that they knew Jesus. I always, we come and we remember they have a very superficial understanding of what to know Christ means. Paul here in Philippians chapter three, as we go back to Philippians chapter three, Paul is helping us to understand what true knowledge of Jesus implies in the life of the Christian. What is to know Christ? Paul is going to tell us what to know Christ means. Let me ask you, what is eternal life? One of the great blessings of the Christian life is what? You have eternal life. But what is eternal life? How does the Lord define eternal life? John chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. And the Son, Jesus Christ. So, this see, the heart of the Gospel is the Father sending the Son to rescue His people from eternal death and giving eternal life. So, what is eternal death? To not know the Father and the Son. And what is eternal life? To know the Father and the Son. And you see, eternal life is not just for the life to come. Eternal life we have now. It's a present acquisition that we have. And that's why we are knowing. Christians are knowing God right now. And that's what Paul shows us right here. What it means to be a Christian, the heart of the Christian life, to know, to know God. Right here in Philippians chapter 3, one scholar says, Paul, Moisés Silva, he says, Paul, no doubt, would have been the first to protest that the gospel he proclaims is too rich to be reduced to a few sentences. But if such a feature could be accomplished, the passage before us would be it. If you could make a summary of the gospel of the Christian life, here it is. What is to be a Christian? Remember, I talk about the testimony right here. Profoundly theological, yet intensely personal. That's the only letter of Paul that we find him declaring, My Lord! My Lord! So, here we are, Philippians chapter 3, and I hope you remember the context. Paul is writing to this church that he loves very much, and he's trying to preserve... Their partnership, their joyful partnership in the gospel. And now he's attacking one issue that he sees that's coming to that church. And that is false teachers. False teachers coming to that church just like they came to all the churches that Paul planted. And the Judaizers, those who would come and tell the church to come under the knife and under the yoke of Moses. And Paul is going to protect the church by giving his own testimony. That's how he's trying to defend them. Look at my life. Look at my testimony. And that will help you to avoid entertaining these dogs and welcoming these dogs into your church. So, we saw last Lord's Day that it's divided just like any true biblical testimony. Life before conversion, life at conversion, and life after conversion. And now we come, we saw last Lord's day, the the first two, Paul's life before conversion, then Paul's life at conversion, and today we come to Paul's life after conversion, and you're just going to walk through verse 8, Paul's present assessment of his life. So, you remember, Paul is... Warning his church that he loves about these false teachers. And he starts giving his own testimony because these people, they're teaching them that, yes, Christ is enough. Christ is good. Christ alone. Faith alone. Amen, Paul. But it's missing something. The traditions of Moses. We need to go back to our father Moses. That will bring us into the table of Abraham. So we can eat with Abraham and the Lord and Moses. But in order to do that, you guys need to come under the yoke of the law and the knife of Moses. And Paul says, ha, ha, ha. Let's talk about confidence in the flesh. Let's talk about trusting these things that the law promotes. And he gives his own example. And he shows how he had place for confidence in the flesh. But then in verse 7, we saw last Lord's Day, there is a change in Paul's life. There is a drastic change. And that's conversion. But, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of Christ. And Paul talks as if he was an accountant. Rick and Sarah, you guys know very well. So, he has his ledger here in the two columns of all the gains and the liabilities. And what he says is all the gains that he had, all the profits. Once Christ met with him, he passed all those things to the liability column. Okay? So, we saw that a new economy of life takes place. And that's with every single Christian. There is a new economy of life. How we see things. But let's go to verse 8. Let's continue here as Paul moves to his life after conversion. And verse 8 through 11, just so you know, it's one long, beautiful, powerful sentence in Greek. So verses 8 through 11 is actually just one long sentence in Greek. And it's very beautiful, very powerful. And how he begins verse 8, the ESV says, Indeed, but it's very weak. The Greek construction here is very interesting. Paul actually here, he, he accumulates a bunch of particles and prepositions in the beginning of the sentence. And so, for example, the NIV has, what is more? The NASB has, more than that. And that shows the, the English translation is incapable of capturing what Paul is actually saying here by accumulating, by putting together all these particles in the beginning of the sentence, he's trying to express his strong affection, his strong emotions towards the Lord in his life now. would be something like, but indeed, therefore, at least there's more. You see, it doesn't sound good in English, but that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to captivate his audience. As that decision was just not in the past. I remain with this decision in the present. So look at verse 8 and compare it with verse 7 because in verse 7 he says All right, my grammarian's here. What is the verb tense that he used in verse 7? Yeah, we have in the past, have the perfect there. And then in verse 8, what is the tense of the verb? Present. That's very important. Because in verse 7, he's talking about the moment of his conversion when Christ showed up. And he says right there, I counted everything as loss. And now he moves to verse 8 as if, all right, Paul, that was in the past, but how about now in the present? Do you still count all those things as loss? And he's like, yes, indeed, even more. I count all those things as loss. We often hear in Christian circles people talk about evolution. They evolved. In the beginning of my Christian life, I was very radical. I was very zealous. I was very narrow-minded. But now, I'm broad-minded. I accept everyone. There are so many ways to God. Who are we to judge homosexuality? You see, People, I evolved. I grew. And he asked Paul, Paul, was there an evolution? He's going to say, yes. I became even more narrow-minded towards Christ. That's what Paul is doing right here. No balance. I became more passionate for Christ. That's what he's saying right here. Verse 8. And look at that. Indeed, I count. We have the present. And now he has, I count what? Everything. Everything. Panta in Greek. In contrast, to tota that he said these things in verse 7. Not only those things. Not only my pedigree and my achievements. But everything. All things that will come on my way hindering me from knowing Christ. I count all these things as loss. That's what Paul is doing. doesn't matter how precious, how profitable those things were. Family, religious heritage, comfort, position, wealth, power, all the things that Paul had. And he says, I count them as loss. I count them as loss. If they're going to hinder me from knowing Christ. And that's true conversion. How do I know if a person has been truly converted to Christ? You look at this person's life. And you watch. You see. This resolution was not in the beginning. And then he stopped. That's what I hear so many people say. I don't know if he's a Christian anymore. Before I remember he accepted Jesus. He was baptized. But now he lives like Satan. But hey. He said so back in the day. Who cares? The Christian life is marked by the present. Is he living in this disposition of renouncing everything to know Christ more? The Christian life is a progression in loving Christ more and hating everything else that comes between you and the Lord more and more. So look how he says, Indeed, I count everything as laws. And now he gives the reason why. Why, Paul? Why do you count everything as loss? And then he says right here, because, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the surpassing worth, or the N-E-A-S has the excellency of knowing, of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. A beautiful word here, Paul had used earlier when he says, Count others more significant than yourselves. People deserving more. Worth than yourselves. And how he is right here. Surpassing in quality or value. That's what the word means. So Paul is saying that he found the great treasure. The treasures of all treasures. And this treasure excels and surpasses in greatness, in quality, in beauty, and in value. Everything else that the world can offer him. That's what he's telling us here. And what is this thing that surpasses everything else in value and worth? He says right here, what? Yes. Knowing Christ, the ESV has, or if you have the NES, the knowledge of Christ. That's amazing. The greatest treasure that Paul has, that he counts everything as lost, is the knowledge of Christ. And then the question is, Monday night I was translating. So usually Monday night I start the translation from Greek to English. And I got to this part here, and that's when I started scratching my head. It's like, all right, here's Paul using that genitive, the possessive. And now we cannot be certain if he's talking about the knowledge. And here the NEAS has, because that's the literal in the Greek, the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And then you might ask, what is the problem with that? What does it mean? Is that the knowledge that Christ has of me or the knowledge that I have of Christ? Huh. And that's very important. So the ESV translates as the objective, genitive. Knowing Christ. That's the greatest treasure. But we cannot be sure. Sure. Because we can only know Christ because He first, what? Revealed Himself. Knew us. Both truths are inseparable. We can only know Jesus because He first foreknew us. So, for example, in John chapter 10, verse 14, He says, I know My own. Consequently, what? My sheep know me. My own know me. That's very important. So, uh, I agree with Gerald Hawthorne when he says that ambiguity ambiguity here is on purpose. And Paul does that because in Galatians, look at that. Galatians chapter 4. And that's all of us here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you come to know God, and then Paul explains better. Now he gives the order here. Or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. So, in conversion, in salvation, there is this double knowledge. This double knowing. The knowledge of God. He knows us, meaning He loves us. He has made a covenant with us. He has chosen us. That's when God knows us. And there is we knowing God, knowing Christ, meaning we loving Him, obeying Him, submitting to Him. That's all we have right here. So the most, and I would argue that the most precious, the most treasure of all the treasures that we can possess... The greatest treasure is that God knows us. Is that Jesus knows us. There, there, there are thousands of people in hell right now that declare to know Jesus. That they profess to know Jesus. But Jesus said, I never knew you. So we saw, we saw in Matthew 7. And I will tell them, "Depart from me, I never knew you." We see, people will profess, "Oh, I know Jesus. Yes, I know, I served him. I was in church for years." And yeah, he's going to say, "I never knew you. I ne- wait, wait, does Jesus know about that person? Does Jesus know about that person? Of course He does. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So what does He mean by, I don't know you? That's important, brothers and sisters. What does Jesus mean by, I don't know you, if He knows everything? Yes, I don't have a loving covenantal relationship with you. Therefore, depart from me, you evil worker. All our righteous deeds, all the works of the law, all the religious performance, all the morality they perform, will not save us if Christ does not know us. That's the truth. So, we know Him because He first made Himself known to us. We love Him because He first what? Loved us. We found Him because He first what? Found us. We chose Him because He first chose us. There is an order. That's important right here. So Paul says, Indeed, I count everything, everything, all things as lost because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That Paul would say, I count all the treasures that I have as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And do you know what? Do you know why we read these verses and a lot of times we are not in awe, in shock? Oh wow, Paul. You forsook all because of the knowledge of Christ? I do not need to forsake anything to know Christ. Wow, Paul. What a waste of life. That's how so many people see. Oh, it's good for Paul. That's good for Paul. I don't need to forsake all because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Look at my life. I'm well preserved. Everybody likes me. I have no enemies. And I know Jesus. You see, the problem is we don't know what knowing Christ means, what knowing God means. It's a very superficial understanding of knowing. We think we know somebody because we have certain facts about that person. Right? So, for example, oh, I love J.C. Ryle. Have read his biographies, his books. Does it mean that I know J.C. Ryle? First, his dad. Second, even if he was alive, I have no relationship with him. But I know about him. And that's how so many people in the Christian circles are. They know some facts about Jesus. And that's why it's like, oh, wow, Paul. Good for you. I don't need you. Lose all to know Christ? If you ask the average Christian what it means to know Jesus, do you know Jesus? Oh, yes. He was a great teacher. Born from the Virgin Mary. Was in the Middle East, in Galilee. So they're going to give you some facts about Christ. But they don't know Christ. And we know that because the Bible shows us that knowing is much deeper than our Western understanding of knowledge. Our modern Western understanding of knowledge is facts. If you have facts, you know. But you can see, for example, in Genesis chapter 4. Look at that. Genesis four, one. Adam what? Knew his wife. And she conceived. Wait a second. What type of knowledge that is. An intimate. A deep relationship. It's not that Adam knew about his wife and she became pregnant. He knew his wife. That's the language of knowing that the Bible uses. This relationship. Or Matthew 1, 24 through 25. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. What is this knowing here? Same as the preceding one. The intimate relationship, covenantal, covenantal relationship between two. One scholar writes, Above all, to know God is not simply to be aware of His existence. For the most part, this is taken for granted in Hebrew writings. To know Him is to recognize Him for what He is, the Sovereign Lord who makes a demand on man's obedience, and especially upon the obedience of His people Israel, with whom He has made a covenant. He is the God whose holiness and loving kindness are known in the experience of of nation and individual. The criterion of this knowledge is obedience. And its opposite is not simple ignorance. So, you see, that's why eternal life is so important to understand, is to know God. Meaning, it's a covenantal relationship of obedience. So, eternal death is not to know God, it's not just ignorance about God, But it's rebellion, not submitting to Him, but rebellious, willful, turning away from God. Furthermore, the acknowledgement of the Lord's claims involves a rejection of the hidden gods, knowing that they are not gods. So, for example, Jeremiah, when he's speaking about the new covenant, and he sees and he's so excited about the new covenant that the Lord will establish with His people, He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And then he goes to describe how this new covenant is going to be different from the old covenant. And one of the major aspects of the new covenant is that all the members of the new covenant will know me. Why? Because I have forgiven them. And that's where our brothers who are Peter baptists they don't understand and they don't apply is this discontinuity in the covenants. The new covenant is different. We don't put the sign that they are members of the covenant in babies who do not know the Lord. That's why we baptize those who we believe to be Christians who are in a union with Christ. They know God. Not ahead knowledge, but they know intimately. Or for example, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew. That's not foresight. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Not that God was looking ahead in time and oh yes, I'm acquiring knowledge by looking ahead and seeing that David will accept me. No, foreknowledge means. Before time, God had placed His affection, His covenantal relationship of love towards His people. That's what he's saying here. So, to be known by God is the object of His electing love and grace. And to know God is to respond to His electing love in loyalty, holiness, and obedience. Amen? So, when Paul says... Indeed, I count all as lost because of the surpassing value and worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. You know what he's talking about. He's not talking about head knowledge. He's talking about knowledge like a man and a woman in a covenantal relationship where they love each other. They spend time together. They know each other. That's what Paul is talking about here. To know Christ is much more than having a gigantic head. Amen? Some Christians have a gigantic head. They know so much about Christ. And their hearts are the size of a fingernail. No, to know Christ you have your hearts enlarged. Because you are in union with Christ. And now you love like Christ. You obey Him. You treasure Him. And especially in Reformed circles. We need to be... Very careful with that, because so many people in Reformed circles, they love to know about Christ. And all the systematic theology, the dogmatics, and all they study. And then when you look at their lives, do you truly know Christ? Can you see a person who is laying down his life to serve the people in his church, to love those whom Christ loves? Who walks in holiness? Who puts to death sins? You're like, ah, actually, you don't know Christ. You had a massive head. You know a lot about Christ, but I can see that you do not know Christ as the Bible tells us what true knowing Christ is. So Paul says, "Indeed, I count everything everything as laws because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord." Let me remind you. That's not just knowledge about Jesus. Because the demons knew who Jesus was. Better than a lot of people. Remember in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is in the synagogue and the demon says, Oh, I know who you are. The Holy One of Israel. Whoa. Many Christians cannot even say that about Jesus because they don't know that. So you see how there is a knowledge of Christ that even demons have. that's not the knowledge that Paul is pursuing. And we see that because, look at what it says. The knowledge of Christ Jesus, what? My Lord. My Lord. This personal relationship. The knowledge of Christ Jesus implies submission, slavery to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My Lord. Paul had said right before here, That Christ Jesus emptied Himself, took upon the form of a slave, but then was highly exalted and received the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, the Lord, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And Paul is right here. He enters into the story and he places himself at the feet of Christ and says, You are my Lord. I'm confessing with my mouth what I had just said earlier. My Lord, my Lord, let me ask you, is that the desire of your heart? And do you approach Christ as your Lord? Not the Lord of your wife, not the Lord of your husband, not the Lord of your, your parents, not the Lord of your church members here, but your Lord. And that's where Martin Luther, he got so right that he would say, Christus. Pro-me, Christ for me. you got to understand that Christ died for me. He's my shepherd. He knew my name. This individual aspect of being saved that leads to the corporate. We can only say our father after I understand that he's my father. So Paul's, Paul continues. He's not done here. So he says, For his sake I have suffered the laws of all things and I count them as rubbish. And we, here we see the parallel between chapter 2 and Paul. Do you Remember the kenosis of Christ, the emptying of Christ Jesus? We see right here the kenosis of Paul, the emptying of Paul. The language is beautiful and reflects what he had just said about Christ earlier. So, the vocabulary is powerful, and Paul is setting himself as an example of imitating that mindset of Christ. So, he says, because of Him, because of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. The English is kind of broad here, but the Greek is very specific. It has a definite article before the all things, and the tense of the verb, Implies that he's speaking about a very specific time in his life when a very specific set of things were removed from him because of Christ. It's as if Paul is saying, Because of the surpassing treasure of knowing Jesus as my Lord, there was a very specific time when I lost all my precious possessions. I gladly accept the confiscation of my property. He lost his property. As a Jewish man, he lost his inheritance. My religious and social status, all the privilege that he had were stripped off from him, removed from him, right at the moment of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul trade a list of accomplishments for a list of afflictions. His fame, his prestige. Do remember, he was the, the, the boy in the cover page of the magazines all over Israel. And he traded that for shipwreck, persecution, stoning. That's what he's saying here. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And people might be, oh Paul, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad that you lost all these things because of Christ. And Paul, before anybody feel bad for him... He says, wait, those things were not only removed from me, but I count them, I consider them as rubbish. Here is no Lot's wife, and that's how so many Christians, you hear their, their testimony, and they're talking about the past as if they want to go back to their past. Oh, I used to go to these bars, to these clubs. And as if they're longing to go back there, live their immoral life. Not Paul. He's no Lot's wife, looking back. He says, actually, I consider all these things as garbage. And that's the word that Paul used here. Skubala. The King James has dung, excrement. But well, that's a broad word. That's a broad word. Could be all sorts of filthy things, dead animals, garbage, excrement. So, it depends the context. So, let me show you some Greek dictionaries and Greek lexicons. One says that the word skubala here, translated as rubbish in the ESV, means useless or undesirable material that is subject to disposal, refuse, garbage. Another one says worthless or unwanted material that is rejected and normally thrown out. And one more says that this word refers to such thing as half-eaten corpse. So what does it mean? What Paul is saying. And I think the context is key. Context is key. And some of you know a very... A uh, popular preacher nowadays in, in the Reformed circles. He came to this passage and he said a profanity from the pulpit. And he was boasting because he said that's exactly what Paul was doing here. Shame on him. He has no idea what he's talking about. First of all, Paul is the first one to say, do not let any profanity come out of your mouths." And the Bible uses strong language and you must use strong language when it's there. But let's be wise and look at the context. Paul just called those false teachers what? Dogs. The same word here was used for the food, the, the leftovers, the garbage that dogs would eat around the street. So there is absolutely no need to see as Paul speaking a profanity here. Moisés Silva, he says, there is some evidence that the ancients understood scubalon as deriving from Tois Kusi balomenen. And you can see the two words, kusi and balomenon, and that is to throw to the dogs. Since popular etymologies play a significant role in the use of language, and because Paul had earlier referred to his opponents as dogs, we may have here a veiled reference to the Judaizers. And I believe so. I believe that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's saying... The things that they treat as precious, I throw to them as garbage. They can eat those things. They can devour those things. That's what Paul is saying here. Filthy garbage. Nasty. That's what dogs would be eating throughout the streets in Palestine. And kids, I have an example for you. This word is similar to... Let's suppose we have the moms in the church and they set up a play date and they go to a park. And there is Hannah, Carly, Rachel, Anita with the boys, Tammy, all the boys running around. Any more boys here? Little boys? I think I got some of them. And the boys are running around, running. Suddenly, Joe comes back, running with his hands behind his back, telling his mom that he found a treasure. I found a treasure, mommy. I found a treasure. And Carly says, oh, show me, Joe. Let me see the treasure. And he poses and he brings the hands and there is this dead possum filled with maggots. Maggots and larvae all moving around and stinky. And what does Carly say? Get this out of your hands. That's gross. That's no treasure. That's going to give you a disease. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. The things that some people think they're a treasure that will bring you into Christ's presence, I actually throw that and let the dogs eat. That's what Paul is doing here. For him... Because of him, all things were removed from me, and I count them as filthy garbage. And that's important to stop here, because Paul is not talking about his past. Here, here's the. Let me clarify this, and that's very important. Paul is not looking at his past and saying, oh, my past is garbage. Because we saw that he had a very good past. He had some very noble things. But what he considers as garbage, as filthy trash, are the things that were hindering him from knowing Christ. Were the things that were blinding him to see the glory of Christ. That's exactly what he counts as rubbish. As filthy garbage. The things that were blinding him to see that he needed the righteousness of Christ. And it's heartbreaking to see so many people in Christian circles looking for treasure in the garbage pile, as if they can accumulate something. Here, God, let me present you this, as if that's going to bring righteousness. And last, we finish here. Let me go back here. And here's the purpose of his astonishment assessment. In order that In order that... Paul, why? Why do you call? Why do you call all these things at loss? Why? Why do you even go that farther and say that's filthy garbage? Why do you do that? And he explains here, in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness. That's right here, that I may gain Christ. And that's important because sometimes you read about gaining Christ. And we think that Christ is this commodity that we can add to our lives. Let me just add a little bit of Jesus here. Let me add Jesus to my, all my other commodities. That's Christianity today. Add Jesus. Add Jesus to your life. Shame on us for believing that Christianity is like that. Adding Jesus to our lives. No. To gain Christ means that you must lose everything. There is no Jesus take the wheel. Jesus destroyed this wheel and make a whole new one. It's all yours. Not adding Jesus to your car and now, oh, please help me drive around. That's sick. Jesus is not interested in marrying adulterous or polygamous people. Amen? We must divorce ourselves of all other idols and gods in order to be in a marital union with Christ, in a covenantal union with Him. And that's what Paul is saying. For Him, all things were removed from me. I count them as filthy garbage in order that I may gain Christ, that I may bow before Him, that I may serve Him, that I may love Him, that I may serve the people whom He loves. That's to gain Christ. And the question is, wow, well, Paul, I remember you early in Acts, persecuting the church, hating the church, hating Christ. If Christ was alive, I know that you'd place your hands on His throat and strangle Him to death if He could. That's how much Paul hated Jesus Christ. And he was persecuting the church because he Hated Christ. Christ was repulsive to Paul. Christ was just like the filthy garbage to Paul. But what happened? Now this man says that he counts everything, everything as laws and garbage that will hinder him from knowing Jesus. That's glorious. And that's the work of God. God. And let me call F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary. I thought that was beautiful and i share with you. Here's what he writes about Paul. After Jesus' arrest and execution, Paul thought of him with repulsion, as one whom by the very nature of his death, the curse of God rested. Oh, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Those who proclaim such a person to be the Lord's Lord's anointed, as the disciples of Jesus did, were blasphemers. The well-being of Israel demanded their extinction. And quite apart from Paul's antipathy to all that Jesus stood for, how can one enjoy a personal relationship with someone who has died and whom one never knew? So he says, When God chose on the Damascus road to reveal His Son to Paul, the Son of God at the same time introduced Himself to Paul, I am Jesus, He said. Immediately Paul was captivated by Him and became his slave for life. What shall I do, Lord? He asked Him. And His whole subsequent career was one of obedience to the answer that his question drew forth. In that moment, Paul knew himself to be loved by the Son of God, who, as he was to say, loved me and gave himself for me. For him, henceforth, the first and great command to love the Lord his God was honored in his love for Christ, the image of God. Oh, the man who loves God is known by God. 1 Corinthians 8.3 Listen to this. A relationship of mutual knowledge and love was established there. And then between the apostle on earth and his exalted Lord. And to explore the fullness of this relationship was from now on Paul's inexhaustible joy. For him, in short, life was Christ. To love Christ, to know Christ, to gain Christ. Christ is the way and Christ is the prize. In that moment, Paul knew himself to be loved by the Son of God, who as he was to say, loved me and gave himself for me. A relationship of mutual knowledge and love was established. Have you experienced this moment in your life? Have you experienced this moment in your life? When Jesus showed up. And your life could never be the same again. Because the relationship of mutual knowledge was established right there. Is that true of you? You need to answer that. Is that true of you? Because you read these verses and it's beautiful, it's powerful. Here's Paul's testimony. And we see all the use of I. Look at that. But whatever against you me, I now consider lost because of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. My Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them as filthy garbage in order that I may gain Christ. We cannot stop there. Is that true of you? Because he says that he is a pattern for everyone who would believe. That's not just Paul. That must be every Christian. The longing to know Christ and put away everything that will hinder you from knowing and loving and treasuring Christ. Can you today, brothers and sisters, stand before God, place your hand upon His Word, and say, I hereby make these words my words? To call everything as lost, as rubbish, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you do that? Can you do that? You better if you are a Christian. You have to. Because that's not a unique thing. That's the pattern of all Christians, because we are in a union with the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I pray that if you have no no heart and affection to right now stand before God and say, God, you know my heart, and these are my words. I pray, I pray that the Holy Spirit will change your heart. He would cut with his knife your heart. Perform a surgery where you can say, oh, I have not counted the laws. I have been preserving everything and then I still want to know you. And the Lord say, no, 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 I don't marry any adulterous, polygamous person. Forsake all. And know me. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's the gospel. Eternal life is to know God. It's not just showing up to church, not just reading our Bibles, not just believing that you can pray enough to get to heaven, do good things, be a good person. It's truly knowing Christ, being in union with Jesus. That's the gospel. There are so many. Let me tell young people you have been growing up with Christian parents and a solid church. There are so many, so many young people in hell right now who died in car accidents, who died. And they knew a lot about Jesus. They knew a lot about Jesus. But there was never a passion and affection for Christ To give his life down for the sake of Jesus. So please don't ever say, oh, that was nice of Paul. That was good of Paul. No, no, no. You bring home that. How about me? How about me? Is that my desire? To know him this way? That's eternal life. To know to know the father and the son and Christians have right now eternal life Father we we come before you and we humble ourselves we ask you to examine our hearts test our thoughts and Lord, I pray that you would help us to say like, Job, I knew you just from hearing. I heard about you. But now Jesus show up and I know you. My eyes have seen you, Lord. So open our hearts. Open the eyes of those who are blind. Help us to see the treasure that is in Jesus Christ. There is nothing, nothing in us that can bring us to heaven to be with the Lord. So help us to behold Christ. Help us to cast everything to the dogs to eat. Anything that will hinder us from embracing Jesus. Because to all those who received Him, Who believed in His name. He gave the right to be called children of God. So help us to receive Him. Open the arms of our hearts. And embrace Him Lord. Help us. Help us. Forgive us for superficial Christianity. Superficiality Lord. Help us to understand what you know. You is. And the price that was Paid so He could know You and the privilege it is. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.